Hello, I'm Alex and this is the Geordie Guide to Happiness. Welcome to episode 24. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with the rest of the podcast team, Kath, Chris and Dom. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. So we thought rather than uh, talk about what we've been up to, we'd maybe uh, try and predict the future, didn't we? We thought uh, mm. we're, we're in we're in January. Um, New Year's resolutions have probably gone out the window already. Um, yep. But what do we think might happen this year? I mean, 2020, let's not talk about 2020. This is a new year. <laughs> <laughs> but what do we think is going to happen in 2021? Aliens. Aliens. Start, aliens. Starting yes, strong there, Dom, with aliens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what type of aliens. Maybe they'll just be like really lucky aliens that, that have invented space travel, but they haven't got basic things like hair dryers or stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're coming to, to visit us for help, actually. Just kind of borrow our stuff and never give it back. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, I've met aliens like that before. Actually, I think of it. Got half on record. Do not think they've been misdirected, or <laughs> yeah, they could have, they could come here by mistake and take one look. They might have come already last year and took one look and disappeared. And thought, yeah, yeah, we're not dealing with this. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> Well, I'm hoping in 2021 that I will get my skates back on and we'll get back to roller derby practice because it's mm. been nearly a year since our last practice. And uh, mm. yeah, sad times, but uh, I'm hoping this will be the year in the next few months. Who knows what will happen? But yeah, I really hope we can get back to practice because I've really missed it. The skating, but also the community that, that comes with it. You know, it's such a huge support network for a lot of people, a huge, you know, part of people's social lives. Um, yeah, so I really hope we can get back to it this year. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of hoping that, well, I'm not sure I'm hoping this, but I'm I, some sort of coronal mass ejection from the sun, I think would be great. <laughs> because I, I'm sort of dumb, I'm kind of following on with your space theme here because, yeah, you know, mine was nowhere near as dark as that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no, no. It doesn't have to be sort of completely apocalyptic. Just, just <laughs> wiping out all electronics, and for for the time being, I think, I think just just for a little bit of respite from Zoom mm. would be great. I think people would like that. You know, just you know, it, it, that could selectively take out you know those range of technologies, mm -hmm. but leave the podcasts alone. Yeah, yeah. Because I yeah. think people would miss the podcast, especially this one. For, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm going for. I think more more realistically, I'm just kind of hoping that the the shape of the year will sort of be like a mirror image of 2020. So you know, where 2020 started okay and just gradually got worse and worse and worse. You know, it'll start seeing fairly bleak and dark in 2021, and then gradually getting better and better, but quite quickly. So. Well, I mean, Dan talked, Dan talked in the last episode, didn't he? He kind of felt that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's hope for that, Chris. Yeah. Good prediction. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good prediction. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't quite a prediction really, but uh, I've got it. I've seemed to have acquired a new hobby, which is watching CNN on the news channel. <laughs> wow. And, one of their um, articles that they're running at the moment is that air flight and car use uh, obviously are hot issues at the moment. So apparently it'll be easier to make a, a self-drive airplane than a self-drive car. 
So I think I would like a self-drive airplane and then I can go to Australia. Nice. But, Fair enough. But seeing as that, it took me a few goes to get a driving license. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love how you lot are all talking about quite out there things. And I'm like, I just want to skate around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, guess which one's actually going to happen now. <laughs> I'm a realist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On that note, shall we introduce this week's guest interview? Let's do it. <laughs> um, I'm going to hand over to Kath for this one. Yeah, I had such a good time talking to Andy Clark. Um, he's been in the Northeast for about 18 months, uh, maybe slightly longer. And yeah, so he hasn't been in the, in the city for very long. And it was so interesting to get a perspective of, of a, a new resident. Some of the things that he talked about, a, a lot of uh, resonance with his hometown of Glasgow. We had we had met quite a few times, but there were so many things that I didn't know about him. And that's always fascinating when that sort of thing comes out. So we had this amazing conversation about trains and we had to cut that bit because we could have gone on and on about trains for ages. Um, <laughs> but the the thing I didn't know about Andy was that he was a, a pipe major. That floored me, actually, because I thought, why didn't I know this? <laughs> so I, I learned a lot and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him. I didn't really have to ask many questions about happiness because in his conversation, I think, I don't know what you think, but I think a lot of quite profound things came out of it. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to him as well. So here's my conversation with Andy. Good afternoon, Andy. And uh, it's the second time today we've had a conversation, isn't it? I know. It's, um, we've not spoke to each other for a couple of weeks and now we can't get rid of each other. I know. I know. <laughs> so I'm Andy Clark, a Scottish immigrant resident in Newcastle. Uh, I work in the Newcastle Oral History Unit at the university, and for the last year, I've been the pipe major of the City of Newcastle Pipe Band. How did you get to be in Newcastle in the first place? So I think it was um, mid to late 2017, the Oral History Unit um, was set up at Newcastle University, and they were looking for a couple of postdoc research associates, and at that time, I was finishing up a contract at the University of Stirling, which was more criminology and sociology. So I'd had been looking for for other opportunities, and the academic job market is not it's not that um, great at the best of times. It's probably worse now than it was then. Um, but when the the word spread quite quickly because a new unit with that kind of level of investment with a new professor was quite a rarity. Um, so a few people had got in touch with me. Uh, my old PhD supervisor Arthur McIver and Andy Perchard, who's now in Northumbria had kind of flagged up and said, you know, you're going to want to apply for this because it's a good opportunity. So I kind of discussed it with Alison, who at that time was my fiance, is now my wife, about would it be practical or feasible to look at applying for a job in Newcastle? Because we owned a house in Paisley, just outside of Glasgow, so it would involve some kind of relocation. But I think we kind of came to the conclusion that with the way the job market was, going to Newcastle wasn't that bad in terms of where you could end up going to try and look for employment. It's three hours on the train or three hours by car. It's not too far away. Um, so I applied for the job, had the interview, thought the interview went awful, um, really 
usually I've got for some reason I've got quite a good track record with job interviews and I usually have a feeling when I leave I'm not one of these people that says oh god it was terrible when you know yourself it was absolutely it was actually brilliant I hate people to do that but I had a real sense that nah I could have done that better because there was an epidemiologist interview panel and that kind of threw me I wasn't expecting that <laughs> I don't really know how to answer your questions because I remember after the interview I kind of did a walking tour of Newcastle back to the station because I thought well, I want to see what Newcastle's like because there's not going to be any reason why I'll be coming back. But I must have done something right. Um, and I get the phone call from Graham that day. Um, I was actually sitting, and I think it's the Mile End pub for the Mile High pub. It's the Wotherspoons just next to Newcastle Central. I was sitting there having a beer, waiting for the train back up the road. Um, and he phoned and said that they were, they were going to offer me the, the position. So it was a nice feeling to have when you don't think you've quite done your best. But, you know, we're all much more critical of ourselves than, than other people often are. So that the interview was in the October and then I started the job on the 13th of November. I remember that because it was the day after my, my niece was born. Um, so I was kind of travelling to Newcastle and um, getting updates about how labour was going and stuff. What are your impressions of, of Newcastle then after a, a year? I love Newcastle. I think it's a brilliant city. Um, I mean, I'd been to Newcastle once before that I could remember, but that was a stereotypical why the Scottish boys go to Newcastle. You go for a weekend and the drink and, and you go out to Sinner's Bar and all those stupid things. Because um, my pal lived down this way when he was, we were all working in the early 20s, so we had a weekend down just kind of seeing, not seeing the sites, but seeing the pubs mostly. My impression of Newcastle changed so quickly because it's it's a city that's really undersold um, from the UK perspective, north and south, because you know about Newcastle as the party town, the big market and all that kind of stuff, but when you go beyond that, the likes of Jasmine Dean, Heaton Park, Oosburn, the quayside, it's absolutely stunning as a city and aesthetically I really love it I love walking down Grey Street or Market Street over that kind of area or walking through Jesmond uh, we live in kind of high heating and it's just a really nice area there's not much hassle or trouble and I hate saying this because it's such a cliche but it's just very similar to Glasgow in terms of the layout of the city it's compact and the people are, are fantastic there's, the Geordies are very similar to the Glaswegians and being helpful and cheery and friendly and it's just it's a city that I didn't think I would love as much as I did. Tell me about one or two of the things that you've enjoyed doing in discovering the area. Jasmine Dean is right up there. I love walking around Jasmine Dean. I love taking the bike round. Anyone that's come to visit us in Newcastle, it's somewhere we take them to if the weather allows for. Because we're not far from Jasmine Dean, it's only about 10 minutes. Um, and if someone comes down with the kids, we can take them to the petting corner. If adults, we can just walk around the grounds, have a picnic somewhere, walk up past the old mill and the waterfall. And I think because Jasmine Dean is so, it's in such a, an urban area, it just kind of, you would blink and you would miss it. If you didn't know Jasmine Dean was there, if you were driving along Benton Road or even up kind of through Heaton, if you weren't looking for it, you probably wouldn't know it was there. And that's what I like doing with people that don't know the area. It's kind of like we're going to walk through all these streets and then suddenly you're going to be in a forest that you just would never expect. What did you think of the Oosburn? Oosburn's lovely. It's, it's just such a beautiful area. Um, the, the burn itself and then when it cuts down heading towards the quayside, that's, that's somewhere else I usually take people, um, especially when my pals have been down, if you do the kind of mini pub crawl from Shields Road and you go down to the Tyne, the Clooney, um, the... Northumberland Arms I think it's called there's a few nice wee pubs down there that 
it's just it's so removed from the hustle and bustle of the big market, but you can still have a really, really good day out. Do you think exploring is one of the things that makes you happy? Oh, no, absolutely. Seeing new things, finding new things. One of the things that I really like about being in cities is seeing how things piece together. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll try and explain this. When I was younger and I was in Glasgow, my older brother lived in the East End and I'd never really been to the East End, but I got there by hook or by crook to his flat. And the next day I was taking the bus back and we were going down this road and then suddenly we were at the Barrowlands, the really famous um, concert venue and market. And realising how that linked into the east end of the city and how the, everything kind of joined up. I was like, all right, so if you go up that road, then you're in Deniston. If you go that way, you're going to end up in Tollcross. I love that kind of thing. It's, it's obviously much easier with Google Maps, but just kind of stumbling across things that you maybe aren't sure that's where they were. And I think it's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, Alison and me, we were at a walk a few weeks ago and stumbled across the Newcastle United Training Centre, which is five, ten minutes from the house, but I'd never known that's exactly what it was. So walking back, we'd been up the Rising Sun Country Park and it was just kind of stumbled. I was like, oh, that's, that's where the Newcastle train. You, know, you get that kind of boyish thing of, oh, that's where the footballers go. <laughs> and you realise just how connected everything is. Through early lockdown, when the weather was so fine, I walked for miles around the city centre. And as as with some things, London in particular, I don't know why people go on the underground in London because you can see so much <laughs> more exactly. up top. And the dis yeah, the distance between the river and and the high end of the city is isn't very big, really. No, and that was again that's something we did during the first lockdown was just being able to get out and explore things that. Otherwise, you wouldn't, because usually you're you're going from A to B for a purpose, whereas during lockdown it was, well, there is no purpose. It's just going out for the sake of of fresh air or just, as you say, kind of exploring. And that was the first time I took my bike across the Tyne Bridge on the road, which is something you would never be able to do in normal times. It's dual carriageway and it's ramped. It was dead. I was the only person on I thought, oh, bugger this. I'm just going to jump the road and cycle across the Tyne Bridge because there's no one else here. I love just kind of stumbling across things. I mean, I like walking with a purpose. If you say, right, I'm going from here to there, maybe it's 10 miles and that's why you're doing it. But sometimes just going out, and especially on my bicycle, just kind of go out and go, I don't know where I'm going, so I'll take a left and then I'll maybe take a right and I'll keep going for a while and just kind of see where I end up. And I think the first thing I did that during the first lockdown, I ended up in Wall's End where they were building the big, um, the bases for the wind, for the offshore turbines. It was just completely by accident I ended up with this site taking photos and, you know, if you ask me how did you get there, I, was, well, I don't really know. I just kind of headed towards the river and then turned a few times. If you were taking a few minutes and thinking, oh, I want, I'd want, i like to do something, uh, what makes you happy or content in that sense? <sighs> that's, that's a big question. Um, I, d I don't think I could pick one thing. If that's, It depends on my mood. Sometimes I want to sit and read a book. Other times that's exactly the opposite of what I do and I want to get up and uh, I love cooking and I love cleaning. I'm quite content when I've got a, a, a brush and shovel and I can clean things up and make them clean and tidy. I think if if I was feeling particularly low, I would probably jump on the bike and go somewhere for a cycle. Um, not even so much as making happy, but just getting out and feeling the fresh air in your face. I think if you're feeling particularly poor, that's that's a good way of kind of getting around it. In fact, last week, as kind of lockdown two was starting to bite a little bit, I just took the bite out of the mouth and thought, bugger it, I'm just going to go out, go a cycle. And sure enough, by the time I came back home, had a shower, I felt 10 times better. Um, but other times I'd probably just go off and go to make a pot of soup and just been able to tune out of life and, you know, chop up the veg and 
mix everything up and make a nice pot of soup <laughs> at the end of it. You've got something lovely, hopefully, um, something you're going to enjoy eating, but it's also just a way to kind of calm yourself slightly from the pressures and um, problems of day-to-day life. Just anything that can kind of remove me from that, that's, I'm happy. That's a really nice phrase, tuning out. It is It is something that... that gets you away from the immediate. You don't have to go anywhere or even do too much, but just a little something that takes you away out of the moment. Oh, that's it. And I don't want to sound like an old person um, because I've heard a lot of older people say this about constant access by technology and your phone's always there. And my phone never stops going because not for any important reason for group whatsapps and someone will send a joke or someone will send something they've found what i usually do is just put on my do not disturb on my phone and just as you say tune out zone i'll usually put a podcast on listen to listen to something that i can just kind of half pay attention to um and then not receive messages not receive phone calls or anything and just enjoy the peace and quiet for a little while Happiness, by the sound of it to you, doesn't depend on something terribly complicated or expensive or time-consuming. No. It's, it's in the moment, it's in the moment almost. And it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, something really expensive would probably make me very happy. But um, I think it's just entirely dependent on what kind of mood you're in. Um, what, what you feel like at the time is going to make you happy or lift your mood or lift your spirits. Um, the other night when my wife came in from work I, I didn't even ask, I said right put your coat on we're going to time mouth and we're going to walk along the promenade for a while because I just felt I had to go out the house and go and do something um, but as other times if she came in I would say right put Netflix on and we're going to sit in my arse for the next five hours and just watch telly you know? um, and I think this year more than any because regular routines are so up in the air non-existent to some extent what cheers you up or what makes you happy kind of varies day by day um, especially if I've spent the whole day on Zoom I probably don't want to sit and watch TV all night because I'm just fed up looking at the screen whereas other times if I've been running around trying to do things it's probably like sit and watch the telly um, you don't have to speak to each other you're just kind of content in each other's company to focus on something else That's a, re- that's a really nice point about being content in each other's company Yeah, that sometimes there's no words to that is there? It's you're just together. No, exactly. And um, I, I wrote about that in a blog recently about the kind of comfort, the comfortable silence and how you can just be so relaxed and you don't feel the need to say anything. And I've been kind of thinking about how that changes during lockdown because when you're in this kind of medium, you feel like there's a constant exchange and you can't really enjoy those silences as much. But no, I think sometimes silence is just absolutely what you need. Can we switch a little bit to your work life? What is it about your work life that is satisfying or gives you some contentment or personal satisfaction? It's probably the same as you, Kath. It's speaking to people. It's engaging with people um, either through interviews or through meetings and then the kind of informal side of things like the drop-in earlier on. I just love meeting new people and speaking to new people. And I think... That side of oral history is the one that I kind of cling on to most. I hate going through periods of not being able to do interviews because it is that that I get real satisfaction from. I mean, I do get satisfaction from 
writing a funding application that I think is quite good or producing a good article um, I enjoy reading or getting positive feedback from people. But that face-to-face or face-to-screen interaction with other people is definitely the part of my work that gives me most satisfaction. And Can you tell me a little bit about a set of interviews possibly that have given you a lot of satisfaction? I think possibly the first set that I did when I came to Newcastle, which was interviewing former apprentices with Sigmund Pumps. And by the time I interviewed them, they were, I think, between 94 and 97 years old. And just speaking with those guys, and the interviews were long life oral histories, and on over many sessions and many hours. And as a new person in the city, it was, first of all, a really interesting way to learn about Newcastle, because um, I'd only been here about a month, a month and a half interesting to learn about the history but also just in terms of oh someone lives in Wickham all right where's Wickham I better find out where that is and how I get there but what I really took from that was interviewing guys at that age 94 and upwards and giving them that opportunity to just kind of go on the record about their life history it's such a a simple thing we do as oral historians isn't it but I think because they were very aware of their age and I was quite aware of their age as well there was that much more of a recognition of, well, if we don't do this now, it's not getting done. It was just such a really, they were so nice as a group of interviews, and there's only five of them, but they were such a nice group to interview. One of them gave me a bottle of whiskey for my birthday because he says, oh, I've got that in the cupboard and um, I'm probably not going to drink it, so there you go. And we were just, before the interview and after the interview, sit and have a gab and a blether. And it was just, it was such a nice way to start a new job. It wasn't the project that was hired to do it just kind of come up out of nowhere and it was just such a a nice way to break gently into the new role and a new city and a completely new way of doing oral history because I'd never actually done life histories before then I had always done quite specific topical thematic interviews and it was the first time that Graham said look don't go in with questions just go in with your recorder and see how it develops and I've never looked back because that's that's the approach that I always take now is to try and do those kind of longer open interviews. Did did anyone tell you afterwards that they'd enjoyed being interviewed? Uh, I, I don't know if it came out in those words so much, but they all were happy for me to come back. So I could only assume that it was something that they were enjoying. They all and they all seemed to look forward to to when the next session would be. I mean, there was one guy and he was just in the house and it was just him and his wife and his wife was really far on with Alzheimer's. So I think for him, just me coming along and, and talking to him was was something that he got a lot of enjoyment out of. And he, he would show me his photo. He used to be an amateur photographer, so he would have all his pictures out and he would sit and go through and show me them. And I think just having someone that was interested about speaking about him was something that was really good because the, the sense that I got was the people that came to the house were there to check up on how his wife was rather than so much in terms of his well-being because, because she was so ill. I think that's that's something that I I hadn't appreciated in in my inter- interviewing or meeting people was that quite often they'll they'll at the end of it they'll say I really enjoyed that and they're surprised I think and I can totally equate to everything you've said about about the uh, the Sigmund crew because. Um, I, I wish I'd got to speak to... I've, I've read the transcripts of, of those interviews. I wish I'd got to meet them. I think one of, one of the nicest things was 
the external transcriber wrote a note in one of the transcripts and it said, this is the nicest interview that I've ever listened to. It was so enjoyable. And that was, that was such a nice feeling of, oh, it's not just me that's taking something from these. Other people that have listened are also enjoying listening to these guys talk. We've come across a concept as we've been doing these interviews. It's called uh, retrospective happiness. So possibly it could be something that you didn't really want to do or weren't looking forward to. But then afterwards, once you've done it, maybe a, a day, a week or a year afterwards, you think, wow, that was a great experience. Oh, I'm glad I did that. Or I wish I hadn't dreaded it in the first place. So is there anything like that you could think of? But, but that sounds quite similar to when I give a talk at a conference. And I'm really quite anxious beforehand. And then once I start speaking, I enjoy it. And, and I know, but the funny thing is, I know that's how it's going to go now. I'm going to be really tense and anxious before it. And then once I start speaking, I'm going to be fine. And afterwards, I'll probably go, yeah, that was that was great. I think if I could, if I could pick one thing that I was really worried about and then looked back on and enjoyed, um, I used to, because I'm, I'm a piper, musician-wise, I play, I play the bagpipes. And we were on tour as part of a kind of concert group around Germany. Um, I think it was like six dates in Germany. And I was asked if I would do the solo performance one night. I think there was, I, I, I can't remember the specific arena, but it had been somewhere between about 800 and 3,000 people. And I absolutely, I, I kicked and screamed that I didn't want to do it. I was like, no, 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 I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But eventually just kind of was told, right, well, tough, you're doing it. And then when I was actually on the stage um, and you get the kind of roar of applause after, it was, I wish I'd enjoyed those last five minutes a bit more and actually kind of took in what was happening because I was just so worried about making an error or something catastrophic happening that I didn't allow myself to actually enjoy the experience of a lot of people have paid a lot of money to come and watch me play music and they seem to be enjoying it. Um, so I, know, I think probably... The, the musical side of things is where I kind of dread it up until a point and then always really enjoy it once it's finished. And I think, especially when you're performing solo, you feel that kind of pressure weigh, weigh upon you much more. Because uh, I've played in front of bigger crowds. I played alongside Andre Ryu, the, the violin guy who's always on Sky Arts. Um, the band played with him um, in the Scottish Exhibition Centre, I think there's about 12,000 people there, something like that. But because you're part of another 20 odds, you know, if you make a wee mistake, it doesn't really matter. So I could enjoy that much more and go, wow, like 12,000 people and Andre Reuse in front of me and his orchestra's here, it's fantastic. But I think, in thinking about that retrospective happiness, what one of the ways I look at, particularly musical performance and especially in competition, and it's something my dad always taught me, is if you're not apprehensive and you're not nervous beforehand, you don't care enough. And you should be, you should have those, the feeling going in your stomach. Because it's, it's not just nerves and anxiety, it's also excitement. And you're excited about what you're about to do. And once that goes away, you're losing something as a musician because you're not responding positively to that nervousness. So when my dad's in his 60s, he's been playing in pipe bands for 40 years, and he says, no, I still get that at the start of a performance when, when, you, when you're, the butterflies go a little bit. And if you don't have that, it means you're not as invested in it as you should be. And I think that's something that I've, I've kind of taken, that nerves can be such a good thing 
when you're performing and you know sometimes it's been really bad when I've bitten my fingernails to nothingness and um, chewed my lips so bad that I can hardly play the pipes but once it's finished especially if it goes well there's no bet there's probably no better sense of happiness from my perspective is if you've played a performance as part of a band or just on your own and you finish it and you go that was as good as we could have performed it doesn't matter what the result is it doesn't matter what other people think you're happy in what you've done and you're content that that is the best that you could do that's that's amazing that's great andy thank you can i change the subject completely of course you can once or twice at meetings we've been to, trains have come into the conversation, but we've never actually bottomed this thing about trains. <laughs> I'm sure, was I at a presentation one one day where you showed a film about a train being tested to destruction or, or the nuclear cargo that it was supposed to be carrying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's a, by the way. what You do like trains, don't you? I do. It's almost it's like my dirty wee secret um, because <laughs> <laughs> tra- tra- I'm, I always say I'm not a train spotter because train spotters go out their way to see trains. I see trains just by day to day life, so I, I kind of make that distinction stupidly. Um, no, I've always since since I was really small, trains have been something that have fascinated me, excited me. Um, I've always enjoyed looking at trains i love being on trains in fact i was actually talking about this this morning because me and alison might go to durham next week just for a day in durham and i was like oh yes we can get on the train and jump for newcastle down to durham that's going to be so exciting um it's just i don't know what it is maybe it's just the sheer power of them um there's definitely a nostalgic aspect in terms of where i was brought up but trains are just the mode of transport that i would always choose over any other I remember we went at the, the Oral History Society conference in 2019 when it was in Swansea. Oh, yes, I was there. I was there. That's right, you were there. Um, and there was a group. Were you in the group that went by car? No, no, no. No. So there was a group. It was Alison, Sylvie and Jack hired a car and drove down taking turns driving. And I said, there's no way I'm sitting in the car for seven hours. I can't do that. I'm not sitting in the car. And then Sue Bradley was flying Newcastle to Cardiff. She said, I can fly. And I was like, no, I hate flying. I said, there's no way I'm getting on one of those wee stupid planes to fly down to Cardiff. So the most expensive and the least efficient way of me getting to, to Swansea was getting the train and changing at Bristol. But I would not have changed that because it's just such a much more pleasant way, I find, of travelling, particularly over long distances. Um, and you can see other trains, you can look out for trains. Um, and I'm not at the stage where I write down the numbers in my wee book when I've got my anorak on, but it's just... It's also part of kind of going through Britain because you know, when you leave Newcastle, you see the Northern Line trains and then you kind of head down, you start seeing the Midlands Line and then you head further down at Southern trains and then you get to Wales and it's um, transport for Wales or whatever it is. So you can actually tell where you are in the geography by the trains that you see on the journey as well. And it's always a good indicator of where you are and how long you've got to go. When I when I came back from Swansea, um it was an, an afternoon, yeah, it would be an afternoon, early evening train. And we followed some hot air balloons going towards either towards Bristol or, and it was almost as if these hot air balloons were, were following the train. 
And it was it was magical. It was absolutely... You wouldn't get that on an airplane, would you? No, exactly. I mean, I, I do... I, I like flying because the view you get. You know, you can see everything underneath you, especially if you're flying over somewhere you know, like over a city or... Um, I remember a couple of years ago I flew over Blackpool and it was just like, oh my God, it's Blackpool. That's all my childhood holidays. I can see in front of me. I can see the tower and everything. Um, but the rigmarole of flying and then turbulence and all that stuff, absolutely not. Whereas with a train, you know, unless there's a problem with the network, you, you get on, I always book a table so you can open your laptop or read a book and you can just, it's that again, you, you can zone out for a few hours. Or if you've got work you need to do, you, you can get it done. You can use the train um, in order to do that and when I first came to Newcastle people would say God is it not a nightmare having to come down to work first time on the Monday and then home on the Friday and it was like absolutely not because I get three hours on the train um, the way it's just a, on the way down it would always be my kind of moving office so I would get work started really early and then the way back it would be the start of the weekend so I'd watch a film and have a couple of cans of beer and it's just like it's that kind of bookend um, to the week because <laughs> I don't drive and people are always saying, oh, you need to learn to drive, you need to learn to drive. And my response is always, I will always live somewhere that's got a good railway connection, therefore negating the need for me to drive. As long as I can get where I need to go using public transport, I'm absolutely fine. And I would much rather use the train than use a car. Oh, I know. I'm totally with you on that. And here's a recommendation for you. If you've got your bike out and you come down onto the old wagonways, uh, that used to take the coal down onto the riverside. They're, they're fantastic cycle tracks. One of them just runs the, the side of my street. That's a kind of heating side, and you take it the whole way down. You can either go up to Gosworth or down to the Rising Sun. It's, it's, it's fantastic. My kind of relationship with trains, it's all about where I'm from. Um, so I'm from Greenock, town in the west of Scotland, and it's a small town but with nine train stations across two lines. So everywhere you go in Greenock, there's a train line and a good few times an hour there's a train passing. So it, it's just kind of always been surrounded by that. And my granddad was the station master at Wims Bay, which if you Google it, is one of the most beautiful stations in Britain. It's regularly kind of voted as you know, the most beautiful um, train station. It's an old Victorian with a, top cl- a, a clock tower and then the bridge down to the ferries where people used to go on holiday and stuff like that. But although there was trains everywhere, and like from my mum and dad's house, you can see the train line every twice every hour. You'll see the trains going across. But despite that, we would use the bus if we were in Greenock, if we were going around the town. Getting on a train when we were younger, because no one drove in the house. Getting on a train was we're going somewhere different. We're going somewhere that's a bit further and a bit more exciting. And it could just be down to Gourock to get the boat to the noon. Or it would be going to Blackpool on holiday where you get the train to Glasgow and then the train to Preston and do it that way. So there was always that kind of sense of excitement of if we're not on a bus, then we're going somewhere that's a bit more exciting than just jumping the bus. We're going we're going on holiday or we're going out for a day and it's, it's something to really look forward to. That was the kind of part of independence was me and my big brother and my pals could jump the train and go to Glasgow. And it was like you get a day out in the big city all by yourself because it's so easy to get to. You just jump the train... 50 minutes up the line, that's you suddenly in the biggest city in Scotland, which 13 is really, really exciting. Just as a bit of a wind down, looking back over all the things you've talked about, have you any tips or recommendations about how to maintain your contentment levels or things that have kept you going maybe over the the last few months? 
Do you know what it would probably be the the antithesis of what you've asked for? I wouldn't give advice in terms of you should do this or you should do that. Um, or, you know, you get those mindfulness books that say, oh, breathe this way or go a walk and that'll help. I would, I would take it back to what I said earlier. Whatever kind of mood you're in, whatever's going to improve that and respond to that is what you should do. So don't feel guilty if you lie on the couch with a box of Quality Street, eat half of them while watching trash on telly, because if that cheers your mood up, that's a good thing for you. You shouldn't do it every night because diabetes would probably come calling. But you shouldn't feel guilty in doing the things that make you happy. And it's something that I've really had to learn this year in terms of enjoying doing nothing or enjoying taking time for myself. Because well, before lockdown, I was out at band practice a couple of times a week. I was at the football at the weekend. I was pretty much on the go all the time. It took a long time for me to acclimatise to, I want to do nothing, and that's okay. So I think as long as the rest of your life is kind of healthy and you, you don't just become a couch potato, whatever is in that moment going to make you feel happy, that's what you should do. You shouldn't be prescribed things to do that will make you happy by others because you're the only person that knows. Because sometimes you can go for exercise and feel absolutely miserable at the end of it. You know, It's not a guarantee this will make you feel better. You have to kind of respond to what your body wants and what your mind wants that's going to cheer you up. So that was Andy, and I, I really feel as though I must say thank you to Andy for all the time we spent doing that. Uh, so thank you very much, Andy. Oh, thanks, Kath, and thanks, Andy. That was such a rich interview. I was listening to it while I was sort of pottering about in the kitchen getting the kids' tea ready, and it was a uh, yeah. There was just so much in it. I think what what really sort of struck me was when he was sort of talking about happiness doesn't have to be prescriptive you don't have to say necessarily you know cycling makes me happy or you know um going for a walk makes me happy it can depend on your mood Mm -hmm. so actually sitting down and watching an entire box set on netflix that that (laughs) makes me happy in that moment in time and that's what i need to do in that moment in time whereas some you know perhaps going for a run or going for a big cycle ride or doing, you know, doing some exercise, actually I felt worse afterwards, you know? So I think it's about, <laughs> it's about finding what suits your mood at the time. Um, Don't forget thought, the box of quality street. Oh yeah. And, and the chocolates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question about that? Which, which, which quality street is the one that's left at the end the for green, you guys? The green oh. triangle. Oh, they're the yeah. best ones. Can I just say all of them? <laughs> I could, they're called low quality street in our house. Just saying. One of, one of the things Andy did talk about was is how he found uh, cooking therapeutic almost. The the way he chops up the vegetables. And I don't know if there was a back text to that, but uh, um, creating a, a, a pan of soup was really good for him when he was in that particular frame of mind. Yeah. It mm, was yeah. it was excellent. Yeah. I, I, I have to wangle an invitation to his house. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that was really interesting how actually, yeah, it y- you can change your mind about what brings you happiness depending on what, what suits you at the time. I think that's that's what struck me from his conversation. Yeah. I think I'm going to invite him to my house actually because he said guy uh, cleaning makes him happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, if he, if it makes him, I'll make him really happy at my house. So. <laughs> I, I think I think Chris would enjoy going to Andy's house as well because over the summer, 
when we were doing all the Zoom meetings, he had taken his office out into the back garden and he was doing them in 80 degree temperatures in his back garden. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's certainly not going to happen at the moment, I think. Possibly not. <laughs> no. Possibly not. We, we can always look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. not in the middle of January. <laughs> That's Fahrenheit, isn't it? <laughs> what, what, did, what did you think when you mentioned uh, Andre Rio and being the back and band for Andre Rio? <laughs> that's very specific (laughs) (laughs) I think actually when he was talking about the the performing part of it actually um I could I could totally get what he was saying in terms of you feel really nervous at the time um or just beforehand and that's exactly how I feel before a roller derby game like you're you're so full of nerves especially especially when you're standing behind the jammer line and you're waiting for those whistles to go and perhaps it's not until after the game that you kind of realize oh actually that was quite an enjoyable experience (laughs) but when you're in it um and when he's performing um or waiting to perform um i can totally understand those sort of that nervousness feeling and that worried feeling and yeah so i could relate to that definitely yeah, he said the thing that I always say to my kids when they're nervous about having to do something. It's like uh, you wouldn't be nervous if you didn't care about it. Yeah, so it's okay mm-hmm. to feel like that, you know. But yeah. I, it was—it's always interesting to hear uh, how somebody who's moved to the northeast views Newcastle in the area as well. And I always get really interested in hearing how people describe areas as as new finds. I used to talk mm-hmm. about the Uthern as if it was like somewhere he discovered to take his friends for a drink and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, kind of how you know, which areas draw the attention first, isn't it? Mm. Like whether it's Jesmond Dean or whatever. But it's, it's always kind of good, good to hear from a noob, yeah, as it were. Yeah, I, I, I felt a bit patronising actually because I was I was telling him to go and look at the wagon wheels, and he says, "Oh yeah, there's one at the end of my street." <laughs> 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 and I thought you are speaking to a historian here, you know. <laughs> Again, like like Dan's interview the previous week and others that we've heard, he's talked about, you know, discovering new things whilst being out and about. And he talked about how he liked to sort of work out where things are in relation to each other. And I like mm-hmm. to do that as well. Um, so I, I like to look at maps on, on Mastrava or whatever and then actually seeing them in the flesh uh, in real life um, and working out, oh, actually, that, that place is really close to that place um, and just sort of getting your bearings. I, I find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the beauty of getting lost somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know sometimes yeah. being lost yeah. can be a horrible feeling, but occasionally, you know, you just kind of you, lo- you lose track of where you are and you've just got that freedom to roam. But there comes a point where you suddenly realize where you are and how that kind of fits in with your bigger mental map of where everything else is. Yeah. And it's like, it's like an audible click sound. And I love that feeling. Yeah. It's just a, like, ah, right. Got it. And you suddenly feel more at one with the place where you are because it's, you, you, you've learned a bit of it, but you've joined it all up and it's, yeah. it's more yours now. Totally. I had, a, I had a, a wonderful mental image of him uh, riding his bike across the Tyne bridge on the carriageway in the middle <sighs> because there was nobody else on the bridge. 
I, I had similar I had similar moments like that during the first lockdown on roller skates where the roads were so dead, you know, I could just skate in the middle of the road, you know, and there was nobody coming. It was the freedom, you know, just not reclaiming the streets or anything like that, but just the freedom to just be on the road and not have to worry about being knocked over by a car. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was very <laughs> freeing. So thank well, thank you, Kath, and thank you, Andy. That was another great um, interview for the Geordie Guide. If you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we would love to hear from you. We love to hear your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thegeordieguidetohappiness.co.uk, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Geordie Guide, or on Facebook, The Geordie Guide to Happiness. And as always, I want to give a shout out to our funders. This project wouldn't be possible without support from the Newcastle Cultural Investment Fund at the Community Foundation. So thank you so much for your support. And I'm going to hand over to Kath again because she is doing the interview for next week with someone very special. Going for the hat trick. Going, I'm going for a hat trick, yes. Um, yes, two lovely people consecutively. Next time you'll be hearing my interview with Fal McLean, who in her interview describes herself mainly as a mother, which is, which is lovely. The way she says it is lovely. But more people would know her as an actor with a long history in, in the area, particularly with live theatre. And she has got some amazing insights into what makes her happy and also some of the challenges that she's faced in her life by being a woman in the acting profession with a family when family always comes first. So it's it's very, very interesting and we thoroughly enjoyed doing it. And you'll hear me ask questions like this. From my knowledge of you, you've had so many memorable experiences in, in your lifetime. Are there any in particular that you could say represented you being happy, just totally happy? And you'll hear Val giving answers like this. Yes, I was... Um very happy when I was a child with my great aunts and uh, I didn't have a gra any grandparents who were alive because my mother's mother died when my mother was four and her father died when she was 11. So the, grand the great aunts were really like grandparents to me. One of them was married to an absolutely fabulous man, Uncle George, who was an ex-miner. He was from Bedlington and he had a very strong Bedlington accent. And I couldn't understand a word he said, but he was absolutely wonderful. So, yes, my, my great aunts, they used to take me to the whist drives when I was very small. And I used to get up on a table and sing to, the, uh, to everybody really? at the whist drive. Uh, yes, during the intervals when they were having tea, I used to get up and sing to them. I must have been about four. <laughs> I was always uh, singing and, you know, theatre bound, I think. I also was very happy when I was reading because we lived in two rooms. That was, that was my father and mother, me and my sister, Sheila. We lived in two rooms up above Miss Campbell's bookshop and newsagents on Church Street. And Miss Campbell used to let me go into her shop when it was closed and read oh, the books. Wow. 
as long as I didn't make a mess of them, I could read all the annuals at Christmas. So I was a I was a great reader. I still am. I adore books. So that's it. We've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Geordie Guide to Happiness so far. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. Thank you.